welcome to tonight's episode of The Epic Pencil, a weekly evening of original fiction, conversations with writers, and more. I'm your host, Chris Watson. Thanks for joining me. Poetry is an art form that's always challenged me, both as a writer as well as a consumer, whether I'm consuming the written word on the page or hearing it read aloud. It's a form that has also never come easily to me, as I tend to find prose a more natural outlet for my own written word. But even so, I find poetry fascinating, whether in the form of epic poems, doggerel, haiku, free verse, or any of its other constructions. White space and the arrangement of the words on the page can carry their own weight. And a poet can be a master of the minimum, creating powerful images and multi-layered meanings with just a few words. And sometimes the meaning can be very straightforward, even if the poet has trained you to look for something deeper. One of my favorite stories about poetry, and I fully admit that this is probably apocryphal, involves Robert Frost and his poem The Cow in Apple Time. This poem relates his observations of a cow that has apparently become drunk on fermented apples that had fallen on the ground. In the story that I heard, Frost was walking past a classroom on a college campus and overheard a literature professor discussing that poem and its multi-layered view of the decay of modern society. When the professor noticed Frost, he invited the poet in and asked for his view of the analysis and the meaning he intended to convey through the poem. I saw a cow get drunk, Frost replied, and thought it would make an amusing poem. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to discuss poetry and its power with Rhode Island poet Esme DeVault. Here's our conversation. Regardless of whether a poem is written with multi-layered meaning or simply relates an aspect of real life, I hold poets in very high esteem because I can appreciate, after many failed attempts, just how hard it can be to write a really good poem. That's why I'm so delighted to have my friend Esme DeVault on the Epic Pencil this week as my guest. Esme's an attorney and poet living in Rhode Island with her husband, son, and dog, Charlie. She was previously an English teacher and an academic reference librarian. She's had poems published in Motherscope, Jonah Magazine, The Big Windows Review, and forthcoming in Inkling Literary Magazine and Kissing Dynamite, a journal of poetry. I love that name. (laughs) So welcome, Esme. Thanks very much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me, Chris. It's a pleasure to be talking with you. Excellent. Great. So I want to just sort of start off kind of some with some foundational stuff. Um, how long have you been writing poetry and, and kind of what drew you to that form? Sure. Um, I, I certainly never set out to write poetry. It was probably the furthest thing from my mind. I think that from the time that I was very young, because I was such a prolific reader, I always thought, well, I'd love to write a novel. You know, fiction was definitely what I was drawn to. Um, However, out of happenstance, I happened to run a book group at the women's prison here in Rhode Island. I've been doing it for about eight or nine years. And at some point pretty early on, the women asked me if we could also do some writing along with our weekly reading. And I said, sure, why not? Because I was already writing and enjoying it. And I figured if they wanted to, that would be a great outlet for them as well. So we did all kinds of different prompts. We did poetry prompts. We did songwriting prompts. We did memoir type of prompts. And everything that I asked them to do as a prompt, I felt that I certainly had to do as well. So that's what kind of started me off tinkering with poetry and then really enjoying doing it. Um, 
not in small part because some of the women in the group themselves are tremendous writers and were willing to share very raw, very intimate, and very powerful pieces that they had written. Um, so that, in a, a kind of a way, was a built-in writer's group, if you will, and encouraged me to feel comfortable uh, sharing in that form, which I really hadn't previously done. So that's about eight years ago, I'd mm-hmm. say, when I said, and that was sort of fooling around. It's really only in the last three, four, five years where I've gotten a little bit more serious about it and kind of focused more on poetry than other forms of, you know, fiction and nonfiction. I'm, I'm curious because I, I know we've had conversations in the past and, you know, we've talked about like the idea of, you know, waiting for Godot and how, and how that play resonated with uh, prison populations that saw it. I'm curious, you know, with the groups, you know, with the women that you've been working with at the prison, whether they're sort of extraordinary writers or, or not, I mean, what have you sort of seen in terms of what does it bring to them when they have the opportunity to sort of put the written word down, whether or not it's in a poem or a narrative or fiction? I mean, what, what is it, what is it bringing to, to them or what is it bringing out of them that you, that you are seeing when you're working with them? You know, and uh, what I see, and I certainly would never deign to speak for them and or for anyone, um, is that it really allows them an opportunity to have a voice in a group and to be heard, which is perhaps an experience for people that are incarcerated, both men and women, is a little bit out of the norm because they don't have a voice for the most part um, in the larger society. They're completely shut off from us. So giving them an opportunity to share just their emotions, their feelings. And like I said, some things that they write are very raw and very powerful because they're talking about their lives, some of which, you know, have been a giant struggle or their experiences in prison or just ordinary things as well. I mean, they're not writing about all dire things. They write about love affairs and everything that every other poet writes about. Um, But I think it's that opportunity to share in a safe space because the group is very um, intimate and very close and very connected. And that feeling of safety, and they've even spoken to me about how sharing their writing in the room as we are a group is something that they would be very afraid to do within the prison walls outside of the group, but something about being in the group together and doing Mm -hmm. it allows them to feel a little freer. So I think it's just, you know, and not different from any of us in our writing, an opportunity to have your voice heard. Wow, that's that's really fascinating. And it kind of leads me to my next question, which was, you said that you were a, a voracious reader when you were younger. You know, now you're in a situation where you're working with these women who are discovering sort of how they can express themselves in the power of the written word. Was there an early experience, be it a book, an event, you know, a speech that helped you recognize the the power that language could have? Well, you know, it's funny. I think of a couple of sort of brief interpersonal events, if you will, that involved really simple language. Um, I'll tell you one or two that I can think of off the top of my head, and they're kind of... One of them is a funny story. Uh, When we were kids, 12, 13-year-old, it was a couple of girls and I that were very close friends, we would make prank phone calls. And, you know, this was back in the day when 
There's no cell phones. There's no caller ID. So prank phone calls were, you know, something you could easily get away with. But in this situation, is, is, is your is your refrigerator running? <laughs> exactly. Although we might get a little juicier than that on occasion. <laughs> but, you know, it was fun. It was something to do. And in this one particular circumstance, we actually, myself and my best friend, called a kid in our class. I think this was about seventh grade, who was a kid that other people picked on. And indeed, that's what we set out to do. I'm, I'm ashamed to say now. Um, we called him up and we, we told him who it was calling. You know, I said, it's, it's Esme and my friend and hi, David. And here, we're going to play a game with you. We're going to insult you. And then you can feel free to insult us back. And going into it, we thought, well, we're being very equitable. You know, we're going to do this mean thing, but then we're going to allow him his turn as well. And so we said some insults to him about his ears, which there was a little sort of gag going around that he had potatoes growing out of his ears because his ears weren't clean or some foolish juvenile thing that in retrospect, he probably just had freckles on his ears, you know. So, so we unloaded that, that on him. And then we said, okay, David, go ahead. It's your turn. We're going to be fair about this. And he said, no, no, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do that. And so you know, the simple power of that no taught me that he was a better person than I was in that moment, um, taught me that I had a lot to learn from somebody that I thought, you know, I was teaching something to. Um, and it was just the power of that no. And while that seems like a really the smallest unit of language you can have, it really was powerful to me. Another little story I could tell you, um, and actually I'll interject for a second. As you said in the introduction, I'm an attorney, and with the law, a similar thing what I just said, which is the smallest units of language in the law have great and profound meaning and can change everything. So a simple or, and, a comma, or a semicolon really can alter everything about the law. But anyway, I just stumbled into that. Let me tell you one other quick little story. Um, as I said, I was a voracious reader. And in 12th grade, I had a wonderful English teacher. And I was not, a, I was in a school that was very preppy. All the kids were preppy for the most part. Um, and I was not, I was sort of a quasi juvenile delinquent, if you will, I look pretty scruffy. And this teacher was very fair and equitable to everybody. And I read all the time. I would carry books around school that weren't the books we were studying in class. They were just a book I wanted to read on the off time or at lunch or at whatever. She noticed that. And she, nobody else really noticed me, I don't think, for teachers. She did. And she asked me, um, what are you reading? And I said, at that time, I think I was reading The Heart is a Lonely Hunter by Carson McCullers, who was mm -hmm. one of my favorites when I was a kid. And she said, really? Is it good? And I said, yeah, it's really good. She said, do you think that we should read that as a class? And I said, yes. And so we did. And so in that case, the power of my yes, I felt, again, the smallest unit of language you can have, was so powerful for me. It, it just taught me something that I could be recognized and acknowledged and validated um, by an adult. 
And so those, those are the quick stories I can think of in terms of language. Um, I can give you one more. One of my favorite poets of all time was always Maya Angelou. I loved her from the time I was 11, 12 years old. And I had the really fortunate opportunity as an undergraduate at URI to see her go speak. She came to speak. She was just amazing. And afterwards, I had brought a copy of I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, which people that know Maya Angelou will be familiar with that, Mm -hmm. for her to sign. And as I'm standing in line, you know, having a little tiny chit chat with her, I just said, I admire you so much. You're so wonderful. You know, you're just so powerful. She signed it and she wrote in the inscription, right on as me, right on. And I don't mean R-I-G-H-T, I mean write, W-R-I-T-E. And I hadn't told her that I was interested in writing at all. And to me, I was just blown away. I thought, wow, Maya Angelou is telling me to write. Well, that means something. (laughs) (laughs) Someone wiser and more skilled than I will ever be. That's that's great. I the you mentioned on a couple of occasions sort of the the smallest elements of language, you know, the no's and the yes and the courage that it takes to sometimes say that. <clears throat> One thing that I find fascinating about poetry, myself being a prose person where can get somewhat florid sometimes I expect, I find that poems you know they do such a nice job of in many cases just really distilling down to the essence when you're looking at a poem and you're looking at the words that are in it sort of what's the approach you know what's the thought process that you have when you're looking at the words that you initially put down on a page versus what might be the end result well i i think that you hit on something for me which in my mind distinguishes poetry from prose and I'll sort of describe part of my process which is I think of prose and it's sort of you you have a body and you put clothes on it and you put it in a house or a location and you put other bodies there and you create an environment and a world as as you well know Um, but with poetry it's quite different than that you have a skeleton and maybe you have a brain and a heart and some guts, but you have very little flesh that you're gonna put on that skeleton. And that's what poetry is. It is Mm -hmm. down to the bone, really. And that's anything extra. You end up, you try to be, I try to be a surgeon to scrape off and cut away the extra flesh that's there. So it's really just down to the bone. And it's tough um, because as writers, Sometimes we like to say more than we need to, maybe. (laughs) That's the hard part, right? The editing, or I mean, the writing is the hard part too, but editing is really, it never ends in my mind. I mean, I've even some poems that I've had published, I've gone back and still edited them again because it just always feels like with poetry, you're trying to get just the bare minimum Mm -hmm. that you can have. Great. With that, seems like a good segue. Uh, would you like to share one of your pieces? Sure. And you know what? Since I um, spoke to you about the reading and writing group that I run at the women's prison, I thought maybe I would read 
one of the very first poems that I wrote with them that's sort of inspired by them. It may not be down to the bone, as I just described, because mm -hmm. it's really early on um, in my poetry writing experience. But it's, it's, I think it talks about me and it talks about them. And it, it, I'll get to it. So it's called I Know Who I Am. Most days I wake up 10 feet tall, my mind on fire, muscles aching to move the world, so strong that the earth is like a pebble in my mighty grip. No one can challenge me. I know who I am. That means that even when I falter, even when I fail, even when I hurt and maim and destroy, I've still got me, and that's not nothing. That's a blazing blue sky so high and bright and full, you can't even imagine it. That's a mighty tree so tall and fine and strong, you can't even climb it. That's a crystalline turquoise ocean so infinite and fierce and deep, you dare not swim in it. I know who I am. But I have holes in me too, things I try to patch up or bind together and fix with glue. There are jewels in there, brilliant sapphires and garnets and rubies through and through. But I'm not gonna lie, there's bad pieces too. Stolen parts, mangled things, empty places I try not to go to. But on my best day, I'm the smartest kid in the room. Fearless and loyal, I would take on anyone, even you. But that's not what I'm going to do. I don't have to prove anything or be anyone or do anything that I don't want to do. I'm the real thing. I'm never a sham. That may not be good enough, but I know who I am. Wow. Thank you very much for sharing that. That was, that was great. Um, I'm here with Esme DeVault's attorney and poet today. Esme, do you, because I know you've also written some prose. Do you find it more challenging or fulfilling to write poetry versus prose? Wow, that's a great question, Chris. I find it more fulfilling to write anything that's already been written. That's my <laughs> answer. <laughs> Whatever I've completed is the most fulfilling thing there is. Um, <clears throat> I think that they're just both challenging in very different ways. Um, I so admire people that are fiction writers because to me that's the most challenging by far creating something that really never was there. I feel like when I'm writing poetry, I'm reflecting things in the world that already are there in one way or another. Um, and with nonfiction prose, I'm quite comfortable doing that again, because I'm generally talking about things that already exist, even if it is creative nonfiction, but with fiction, that that's the most challenging to me. I find all writing fulfilling again once it's done. I really do. <laughs> does uh, does writing energize or does it exhaust you when you're doing it? I think that the thought of writing exhausts me more than the actual action of doing it. So for the most part, as I go around the world, writing is the absolute last thing that I want to do until the moment that I want to do it. And then it's the only thing that I want to do. So I feel like I will put off writing forever. 
unless I have something that I'm really desperate to write about. Um, and then I want to get it all out. Editing definitely exhausts me. Again, that's a similar thing where I'm sort of like... <laughs> that's the hard work. <laughs> putting it off forever, putting it off forever. And again, because it just seems like it's never going to end. At least when I've written something, there is that feeling of accomplishment. Even if it's very rough, there's something there. But to go back and edit and edit, I feel like I just never, never finish it. I am energized when something's done. I, I, I feel hyped, pumped up for mm -hmm. sure. I can understand what you're talking about there. Sometimes it's the act of picking up the pen or sitting down at the keyboard. There's just, oh, there's something else I could be doing right now. <laughs> and then when you get into the groove and all of a sudden you look up and you realize that you've been sitting there for a couple of hours and you've lost track of time because you've become so immersed is, uh, is an extraordinary feeling. I think, Absolutely. you know, where do you find inspiration? I mean, you've written about, so many different things and some of it's just some of it's based on prompts but mm. things that are not prompted you know through the writing groups mm. and, and things like that you know when you just feel that need to you know this is something I need to write about what are the types of things that inspire you well I'm afraid that to a large extent I'm probably a pretty cliche uh, poet in that way in that I write about travel and family and love and death and grief and addiction and nature. Nature is a huge one. Nature is hugely inspirational. So I'm not very original in my inspirations, but I will say I also try to find inspiration in the everyday, ordinary, quirky things that happen. So, for example, this past year I wrote a series of poems about my dead car battery. So that's a little not what I normally think of. Or I had a negative interaction, so to speak, with a neighbor over my back fence, and I, I wrote a piece about that. So that's, that's sort of the more fun is something happens in the ordinary every day. You know, not as dramatic as love and death and grief and all those other things I just named, but some small incident. And then processing that incident through the act of writing and trying to make sense of it, that is satisfying, absolutely, and mm -hmm. giving meaning to that. And then maybe getting past the incident, as I just mentioned, you know, a dead car battery, who wants that? A bad interaction with a neighbor, who wants that? But then the, writing the poem helps you get by it, to get through it, to get past it mm -hmm. and move on. So when you sit down to write, is there a particular process that you follow? Do you have to be sitting in a particular place or using a particular pen or do you follow a particular process in terms of first draft, second draft, you know, the whole editing sequence, or is it kind of uh, sort of by the seat of your pants and, and when the inspiration strikes and it's never the same thing twice? Well, my normal process has been shut down by, Corona, as has so many aspects of all of our lives, which is my preferred place would be my public library. That to me is a haven. And every weekend for years, um, I have gone to the library on a Sunday and sat down in a quiet spot and just tried to enjoy writing or editing or even just thinking or journaling about what I might next write because it's so peaceful. And Nobody can get me there, so to speak. It's a lot harder 
at home with family and, you know, not with any negative intention or anything, but to get caught up in things that are going on in the house. So unfortunately, my normal process, because the library has not been open until just now, um, has been shut off. But otherwise, if I have a particular practice that I do, no, I just sit down on the keyboard and type something out. And then, I mean, probably the one thing that is kind of typical for me is then I put it aside put it aside for a while. I'm not going to go back and look at it for a while, truly. And it may be a long while before I go back and look at it. So that would be the only thing I think once it's out, give me space from it. I don't sit there and rework it 52 times right after I've written it. It needs to breathe and live for itself for Mm -hmm. a little bit without me before I come back and then start doing the scalpel (laughs) part of cutting everything away. (laughs) That's great. That's very cool. So my last question before I ask if you'd like to share another poem is, and this is a very broad one um, and somewhat existential, I suppose, or you could take it, you know, very literally, but why do you write? That's the question, isn't that's, it? That's, that, yeah. <laughs> that is the question. I haven't the foggiest idea would probably be the truthful <laughs> answer. I really don't know. I think that... Um, Growing up, again, because I was such a, a voracious reader, which I think so many writers are, I don't know how you could be a writer and not not be a huge reader. It just seems like such a fantastical thing to be when you grew up. I'll be a writer. You know, I thought, I think even from a small child, I'll travel the world and I'll write. It just seems so romantic, right? Of course, the reality is not that. Um, But I think really it is probably something that's, for me, very typical of many people that write, which is it's just about making meaning of the world for me. It's about processing things that happen, which, you know, I'm not saying that it's sort of this therapeutic thing at all. I think it's it it can be that, but it's much bigger than that. It's it's trying to recognize and organize and order and love and appreciate everything in life. Um, and that it's just another way to do it. Speaking to myself in the first instance when I'm writing and figuring it out and then having that be a conversation that you can have with other people other than an ordinary conversation, mm-hmm. a conversation that's ongoing. And writers certainly speak to one another. You know, each generation that writes, I think, is responding or echoing or correcting or replying to those that have written before. So being part of that conversation that's, that's I think maybe why, right? That's that's a really cool perspective. Um, you know that conversation, that sharing of of ideas back and forth, and I definitely agree with you. That whole idea of I'm I'm going to be a writer is just you yes. know some kids say I'm going to be an astronaut, some kids say I'm going to be a private detective, and I can I can definitely agree with that. I'm going to be a writer or I am a writer is a nice thing to say. You just need a business card that says Esme DeVault, writer, you know, and a poet, and just leave it at that. So, um, I, and You know what? I, I don't really think I say I am a writer. Even until no. now, I don't, I don't believe it yet. <laughs> I don't believe it. <laughs> really? Even after, even after being published and, and uh-uh. having your stuff out there and... No, you're you you are a, you're a work in progress. I am a work in progress, absolutely. <laughs> well, I'd love to love to offer you the opportunity to share another piece of of your work if you'd like to. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. 
Um, I will read you something that kind of ties into a, a couple of the inspirations that I listed. And this was actually the first thing that I got published. So that was part of why I was thinking I would read it. Um, I'll just give you a tiny bit of background, which is uh, my son and my husband and I, and I have made a practice of going on vacation to Southern California every year for many years because I lived there for a few years. And I had a dream trip, which was going up the Pacific Coast Highway, we did, which we did. We spent time in San Francisco, Monterey, et cetera, et cetera. The Big Sur was really the destination for me. It's so beautiful. Always wanted to go there. So that's what this poem is about. It's called Big Sur. At long last, my son, we are here. The grandeur of the Misty Mountains disrupting the Cobalt Coast is extraordinary. An extraterrestrial landscape pitched onto our ordinary canvas. The slow drive along these fierce, twisting cliffside roads is frightening. I hold my breath the whole way. You have to really want to come here to suffer through the terror, the sheer steep drop, death whistling past you to see this spectacle. But oh, it is so worth it. You asked to get out of the car. What's the point of being here if we can't get out, you say? I try to make you promise to not stand too close to the edge before I will let you go. But you won't promise, so we don't stop. We are both right. How can I risk so much and how can you not? This is how it is, how it will always be. If I were you, I too would demand to set foot on unsteady ground. I know that and I respect it, but I still cannot let go. Later, I let you stand where you want to, but I don't look, I can't. I walk away and ask you to take a photo of what you see and then send it to me so I can know just how you felt. Someday, perhaps you too will understand this terrifying beauty that I see in you. That's it. I love that. That's, that is great. Thank you very much for sharing. This, is, this has been Esme DeVault, uh, our guest this week on the Epic Pencil. Esme, thank you so much for, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. It's really nice to talk to you. Once again, I'd like to thank poet Esme DeVault for joining me. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and would love your feedback. Contact me at chris at pretendingtowrite.com. The Epic Pencil will return next week with the start of some truly epic fiction. I'm glad you could join me and take some time to listen. And until we read again next week, please enjoy a great book or two, and remember to support your local independent booksellers. The content of the Epic Pencil is copyright 2020 by Christopher Watson.